My rights, your rights, our rights. Human rights is a, is a hot topic in, in today's world. It's, it's really, it's been a hot topic for, for a long time, and, and rightfully so. How many of us have ever heard or said, what gives you the right to dot, dot, dot? It's part of our nature. And it begins at childhood, doesn't it? Just last week, I, I wouldn't give my, my little four-year-old uh, some chocolate after dinner, and her response was, Daddy, that's just not fair! Mind you, her brother didn't get any chocolate either, so what is she saying at, at that moment? Daddy, what gives you the right to deny me chocolate, you monster? On a more serious level, <clears throat> we encounter now popular slogans like my body, my rights. An organization, Amnesty International, in many ways a, a, a good organization, has put together a whole my body, my rights manifesto. And, and I should say the manifesto actually stands for a lot of good things. God, God has given us stewardship over our bodies, hasn't he? And, and therefore, it, it, no one has the right to commit violence against your body or, or sexually harass you, for example. God's people should say, Christians should say, amen to that, right? But the heart of this manifesto is this. It's my body. So don't tell me what to do with it or not do with it. Don't you dare tell me who I can sleep with or can't sleep with. Don't you dare tell me that I cannot kill the body that is growing in my own body. It's my body. It's a manifesto about self-authority. I alone have authority over my body. How dare anyone tell me what to do with it? The, the irony here is that we're, we're, so, we're so naturally skeptical of other people having authority over us, aren't we? But we're almost never skeptical of our own authority over us, aren't we? It's like no one has ever thought to themselves, maybe I don't always use my authority for the perfect good of myself and others. You see, we're not so different than the Pharisees in the first century. They, no, they weren't saying, my body, my rights. What they were saying is, my religion, my rights. Jesus arrives on the scene with a radically different approach to religion. And the issue that the Pharisees have with Jesus is, is this. What gives you the right, Jesus? to define our religion. That is the issue in this passage. It's the issue in Mark 2. And the specific conflict in our story that we're going to be reading, that you ju we just had read by Angela, focuses on an Old Testament law called the Sabbath. Okay, And so I'm going to get into 
into the story in a, in a few minutes. I just have two quick points from Mark chapter 2, 23 to 36. But, but because this law about the Sabbath is so central to the story, the whole thing revolves around this, this thing called Sabbath, I want to take the first five or so minutes, five, ten minutes, to, to actually talk about what is, what, what was this thing called the Sabbath? What was the Sabbath? The word Sabbath simply means to rest. If you were an ancient Israelite, you, you had the requirement, you, you, had, you worked six days a week, but on the last day of the week, you had to rest from your work on Saturday, the Sabbath. It was a sacred day in the, in the weekly calendar of an Israelite. In fact, the, the, the Sabbath was so important in Jewish religion that it's actually found at the epicenter of the law. What's that called? The, the Ten? Come on. Commandments, that's right, the Ten Commandments. This is, this is no trivial command at the, at, the corner of the, uh, you know, at the corner of the law, some distant corner. S- Sabbath-keeping defined what it meant to be an Israelite against all the other religions. In fact, the Sabbath was so serious, if you deliberately broke the Sabbath, you could get the death penalty. But this command to, to rest from work on the Sabbath was far from some arbitrary law designed to frustrate the Saturdays of ancient Israelites, okay? That's not what it was for. No, there, there are two things that you, that you must understand about the Sabbath. In fact, if you're, if you're taking notes, th- these are two things that you, you'll really want to focus in on because the entire story in, in Mark chapter 2, uh, 23 to 3, 6 won't make sense under you, until you understand What's going on with the, what the purpose of the Sabbath is? So two things you need to know about the Sabbath. First, you need to know the intent behind the Sabbath. The Sabbath was intended to, to do good to people, particularly those people, right, who, who might be, who would probably be exploited to endlessly work. Here it is from the, from the Ten Commandments. You can see it on the screen. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, on it you, shall do no, uh, you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Who were the people most likely to be worked to the bone? Children, servants, slaves, hired hands, immigrants. The intent behind the Sabbath is rest, especially for these people, refreshment, healing. You can't work people to the bone. You can't work yourself to the bone. It's about getting your hands bloody for six days of hard work and then, and then letting them have one day off so that they can heal. It's a day devoted to rest and reflection. A, deva- a day devoted to devotion to God. So that's the intent behind the Sabbath. But there's also the goal in front of the Sabbath. You see, Sabbath wasn't designed only to meet an immediate need, you know, rest during your work week. It was intended to point to, to a need far greater in, in the future. I just read from the Ten Commandments a minute ago, right? And, and 
uh, but if you continue reading one more verse, it actually gives you a clue to the reason and goal of the Sabbath. Here it is. It's the next verse. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So we, we read about this in, in our call to worship this afternoon, didn't we? God creates the world in six days, and, and, it, it's, and, and he looks over the whole thing and says, it's good. And then on the seventh day, he rests. And God is not resting, right, because he, he's tired. He's God. He doesn't get tired, okay? He's not resting because he's tired. But then why is he resting on the seventh day? Because after completing creation, okay, he looks over the creation, I just said this, and he, he, he declares, it's good. My work is completed. My image bearer is at the center of my garden. They have perfect dominion over my creation. My, my creation is prosperous. It's fruitful. It's at peace. Creation is at rest. It's as if creation is in a state of Sabbath. But of course, we know, right, what happens. The state of rest is broken, right, by Adam and Eve who rebel against God. And, and, and friends, what is the first consequence of Adam and Eve's breaking the rest of God? Work is hard. It's no, work is no longer this delightful interaction with, with God's creation. Now your hands get bloody when you work. In fact, work drives you into the ground. Six feet under the ground, in fact, doesn't it? So what does God do to this new state of non-rest? To quote another author, in the Sabbath command, God anticipates ultimate rest by prescribing weekly rest. The goal of the weekly Sabbath is to point to forward to a time when, when he will return the world to a state of rest, of Sabbath, back to the garden. The, the, the point of the weekly Sabbath is, is to point forward to a person who would bring final rest and peace, both physically and spiritually. So we've seen the intent behind the Sabbath and the goal in front of the Sabbath, but, but what happened? What happened to the Sabbath? I mean, the command's simple, right? Don't, don't work on... On, or force others to work on a Saturday. But, but what, what constitutes work? You know, the, in fact, the law says very little. It just kind of gives this command. It doesn't tease it out at all. And you're kind of left, well, what does that mean? Well, what happened over time? The, the religious leaders, right, they're called the Pharisees. They tried to work out what it meant, what, what work meant and what work didn't mean. So, so they came out with this exhaustive list of, of things that were acceptable to do on the Sabbath and things that were not acceptable to do on the Sabbath. 
They tried to fill every nook and cranny of God's law with their own laws. And, and so they came up with quite, quite interesting lists, like you can basically, you can walk 100 meters, but not one meter further, so you have to kind of stop there dead in your tracks no matter where you're at. You, you can write one letter on the Sabbath, but not more than one letter. You can stitch one stitch of the, uh, uh, you can sew one stitch, but no more. You, you can't untie or tie a knot. So if you're going to have clothes on, you need a, a rope belt. You just need to leave it at least loose enough so you, don't, you can slip it on and off without working. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, the Sabbath, but, but really the entire Jewish religion has been constantly refined and refined until one day, the whole thing is totally redefined. Well, this brings us to our text today, Mark 2, 23. And the question, right, that fuels this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees is this. What gives you, Jesus, the right to define our religion? Well, here is Mark's answer. He's got two answers. It's going to be two points today. And the first answer from Mark chapter 2, you already saw the answer. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28 is this. Jesus has the right to define religion because of who he is. Because of who he is. Okay, so in, in Mark chapter 2, the, the tension between the Pharisees and Jesus, it, it's, it's mounting, it's growing tighter and tighter. And, and the conflict in each story is being fueled by a threatening question by the Pharisees. And the, these questions continue through the whole chapter 2. It, be, it begins in chapter 2, verse 7. Here's the first question. Why does this Jesus blaspheme? Who can forgive, who can forgive sins but God? We, we did that story last week. And then the next story in, in verse 18, or sorry, in the next story in verse 16, why does he eat with tax collectors and, and sinners? What, what kind of guy does this? In the next story in verse 18, why do the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, Jesus, you, you don't, they don't fast at all. Aren't you guys spiritual? And, and finally here in verse 24, why do your disciples do what is illegal, unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, I don't, I don't take it that these, these questions of the Pharisees are, are incredibly genuine. They're, they're trying to trap Jesus, aren't they? But remember, for an ancient Jew, this, the Sabbath is deadly serious. So serious, right, that if you deliberately break it, it, it could lead to death. So with this question, the stakes are far higher. All right, well, what's going on in, in this story? Well, it starts in verse 23. Jesus and his disciples, they're walking along through some cornfields on the Sabbath, and they're hungry. You know, you can't pop into Mackey's at this point uh, in history, and so they had to wait a few years for that. So, so, so they pick up some corn in the cornfield to satisfy their hungry, hunger. This, by the way, is perfectly acceptable. You can, it's, it's prescribed in the law that you can, you can take a, uh, some corn out of someone's field as long as you don't take the, the sickle to it, essentially, and, and you know, save some for later. So it's, it's perfectly allowable. 
But, but the Pharisees, they, they see Jesus' disciples chowing down on some corn on the, on the Sabbath. And, and so they, they use this to, to attack Jesus. And, and they say, hey, hey, Jesus, why do your disciples do what's, what's illegal on the Sabbath? Aren't you a law-abiding citizen? And Jesus, in, in brilliant fashion, you know, these, are, these guys are the experts in Scripture, right? But he uses Scripture against them. He appeals to a story about King David. In fact, this is a, a, a story about King David that we actually covered in our previous ser- series. I, I preached on 1 Samuel 21, where this story comes from. In, in this story from the Old Testament that Jesus uh, quotes here, David, King David, is, is on the run from, for his life from King Saul. And, and as he goes on the run for his life, he, he stops in a little town called Nob. And, and Nob is significant because in Nob, is, that's where the house of God is. And that's where, at, at this point, the priests are. Well, they're desperate. They're desperate for their lives. They're in need of food. But the only food that is there at this house of God is, is called is this consecrated bread. It's, it's, the, it's the bread of presence. It's bread that's specifically designed in the law to be for the priests. But David and his men are needy. They're in desperation. And so, because of their need is so great, they take and they eat the bread, and they're in no way condemned for doing so. The point that Jesus is making is that even in the Old Testament, the the law is intended, right, to help the needy, not to be used against the needy. That's his point. The the consecrated food, right, it was bread, it was was for the priests, because why? Because the priests didn't have farms, they they didn't grow their own crops, they they relied, they had devoted their, their lives to God and they relied on this food. But David's life is is, is hanging by a thread here, and, and his men, they're on the move. They need it for sustenance. Jesus is saying, listen, the, the Old Testament law is not applied nearly as scrupulously as, as you Pharisees apply it. And then Jesus follows it up in verse 27 with this kind of bombshell statement. Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You, you, you guys have it all the whole way, you guys have it all wrong. The, the Sabbath doesn't, you know, man doesn't serve the Sabbath. No, the, the Sabbath was designed to help man. That, that's the first point, right? The intent behind the Sabbath is to provide rest and refreshment for the people. But the Pharisees, they've slowly transformed it into a hurdle that you must clear in order to get into the kingdom of God. They're making something that's intended to give rest and refreshment, and they're making it into a weapon. Friends, this isn't in my notes, but, you know, don't, don't make God's word or his commands, his good commands, into weapons. Don't, don't use God's good commands that are meant to heal and restore and bring good things into the world and use them as weapons to bludgeon people with. I just talked to someone this last week. God gives, us the good com- good, gives husbands the good command of sacrificial leadership, right? Talk to someone whose, whose husband used the command to lead his family as a weapon to bludgeon his family with. May that never be said. 
of husbands at Rotherham Evangelical Church. Sacrificial leadership. Well, how, how, does, how, does, how does God tell husbands to lead? Love your wife as I love the church. Sacrifice. That was an aside. Jesus is throwing a grenade on their whole approach to religion. The Pharisees, right, they've been the gatekeepers, the definers of religion. And they're going after Jesus right now because they, you've got no right. And, that, and to that, Jesus says, verse 28, the Son of Man, Jesus, is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord. He is, he has authority. And he alone has authority to define religion. He, he alone is the one that has the authority that says, this is how you enter the kingdom. No one else has that authority. The Pharisees do not have that authority. And friends, we don't have that authority either. It's so tempting, right, for us to look back at the Pharisees and think their attitude towards Jesus is just some kind of relic from the past. No, 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 no. A Pharisaical heart can be found right in these four walls. You know, Christian, you can redefine Jesus' words or the Bible so that it conforms to you. It's very easy to do. People do it all the time. I find myself doing it. Oh, you know, I, 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 hear, I, I, can, I hear these kinds of things. Oh, that call to holiness and purity. It's just too radical. Oh, that, that charge to, to care for the least of these and the vulnerable. That's just being a liberal softy. That my success is all of grace? I've worked hard to become the person I am. And so you can acknowledge the shell of Christianity while the whole time you're just hollowing out the substance. You can call yourself a Christian, but then redefine what a Christian means to make it on your own terms. That's being a Pharisee. That's what a Pharisee is. That's saying, I want Christianity as long as I have the authority to define what a Christian means. But friends, to follow Christ, he's the Lord, is to submit to him as a king. This gets to a deeper divide between religion and gospel. Or, or I should say man-made religion because true religion is gospel. M- most people think that if there is a God at all, that then what religion is, is it's, it's all about God's quest to find the righteous on earth. And, and if that's the case, you better be one of the righteous. And, and so they assume that all the morals and the regulations that, that God gives us act as a kind of test for us. So that when God's looking down on the earth, he can easily spot, oh, there's the righteous bit, and oh, there's the unrighteous, there's the wicked bit. That's the religion of the Pharisees. It, it treats religion as a kind of a divine, a divine game where, where, you know, God gives us the rules and then, and then we do our best to kind of keep those rules and, and where, where the rules are, are a little bit ambiguous, we, we fill in the gaps and in fact, we do a better job of making up the rules than him. 
And as it turns out, we're quite good at, make, uh, at abiding by the rules that we make for ourselves. Religion becomes a game we try to win with God. But the gospel, the, the good news that Jesus brings is that true religion is not God's quest for the righteous on earth. That's not what religion is. It's God's rescue mission of the unrighteous, and then he, tra- he, he takes those unrighteous people and he transforms them into righteousness. It's a totally different thing. They're poles apart. But the Pharisees, they're mixing them up. And Jesus isn't going to have it. So what gives Jesus authority to define religion? Who he is, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. But secondly, his authority stems from what he's done. So who he is, and secondly, what he's done. And we find this in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. These two stories, in the last story in two, chapter 2 and the first story in chapter 3, they're really connected, right? They're brought together because they all focus on the Sabbath. Right? It's another Sabbath story. Here the Pharisees, they're, they're watching closely at hand. In fact, the, the original language makes it sound as if they're, they're lying in wait for him, okay, in the synagogue. But in this story, Jesus goes on the offensive, Verse 1 tells us that, that on this day, and they, they, the Jesus and his disciples enter into the synagogue on a Sabbath. Now, this is the home turf of the Pharisees. They're in their element. And, and what the Pharisees are doing in, in verses 1 and 2, they're trying to trump up some, some legal charges against Jesus. That The text says that. And what is the crime that they're hoping to, to, to catch him in? Healing. Big crime, Right? healing on the Sabbath. Of course, Jesus knows their hearts, and so he, this time he takes the first move. It's Sabbath in the synagogue, right? So, so the Pharisees are probably reading a few, uh, having some readings from the law and the, and the prophets, and then they would be explaining them, and then there would be a little time of prayer, okay? That's what happened on the, in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And, and at this particular meeting, there's a man with a, a shriveled up hand, Okay? deformed hand. And it's surprising that, honestly, it's surprising that this man would even come to such an event. We already know that the Pharisees often believe that if someone had a deformity, it was their own fault. It was their own sin that caused it. So, so certainly this man would have had a, a load of shame connected with this deformity. Certainly such a man would not want to be the center of attention at a synagogue on the Sabbath. But Jesus doesn't really care about that. In order, in order to confront the Pharisees, he looks at this man and goes, hey, stand up, right in the middle, there. Maybe he said a little nicer. That sounded quite mean. Stand up, you know, there. And, and with this deformed man, you know, sitting, standing there with his def- this deformed hand in, in the middle of the synagogue, Jesus turns his attention back to the Pharisees. He's going to play their game, you know. They're very good at having discussions about what's lawful, this, that. Is this legal? Is that legal? And so he begins his question. Is it lawful, you experts in the law, on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? 
Let me take you one step further. Let's make it a little easier. To save a life or to kill? Is it lawful? The Pharisees, right? They're so caught up in defining the minutia of the law that they've come to define the whole religion as ticking off requirements. They've made God into, into their own image. He, th- their God is a scrupulous taskmaster. And so when they are asked an incredibly right, an incredibly easy question, what's better, to do good or evil, to save a life or kill? They, they can't even answer. Th- their silence <laughs> shouts from a rooftop the content of their hearts. Jesus responds in verses 5 and 6. He's filled with righteous and holy anger at the hardness of their hearts. He's heartbroken. These are the men who should be leading people into God's kingdom. And they don't even have the courage to say it's better to do good than do evil, or better to save a life than to kill. How hardened you have to be to grace. I I wish we could see what, I wish we could almost have a video of what verses five and six looked like, because I think it would have been a moving scene. In, In response to their silence, Jesus is visibly Distressed, he, he has got anguish on his face and he looks around at the Pharisees and he can't even bring himself to say a word to them, but he has an answer. So he looks back at the, at the man with the deformed hand and he says, stretch out your hand and it's healed. The answer is clear. It's better to do good. Not only is it better to do good, it's the whole point of the Sabbath. Jesus reveals something to us really important here when he heals on the Sabbath. These these healing stories, honestly, I I don't think I used to understand what what Jesus was doing. I thought it was kind of like a little bit of Harry Potter, just a little wizardry or magic flaring out in him. Very cool, you know. Look at what I can do. Voila, ziggity-zaggity-zoom, you know. Um, That's not Harry Potter. I get that. But but do you remember the intention behind the Sabbath? Rest. Healing, right? Right? That's the intention behind the Sabbath. It's no mistake that Jesus chooses to heal a man in response to their question on the Sabbath. Do you remember the goal in front of the Sabbath? That someday, that one day, some person would come that would come to bring true rest and refreshment and healing both physically and spiritually. And that's what Jesus is doing in the Gospels. Physical and spiritual healing. 
Jesus is saying when he says, stretch out your hand, he's saying, I'm the Sabbath bringer. That's what he's saying. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and, and I will give you rest. The Pharisees didn't understand that the goal of Sabbath was staring them right in the face, healing, restoring. Jesus came to earth, right? He he fulfilled everything in God's law, didn't he? He he came and and he broke the bondage of his fellow humans and he liberated them from sin and from all its effects. And then he invites those people to find deep rest in him. In fact, the New Testament author of Hebrews says this, all who believe in Christ have entered into God's rest. As Christians, our, our, our most fundamental task is not to keep the, the, the Sabbath command. We are not under the law anymore. The, our, our task is not to keep the Sabbath. It is to trust the Sabbath bringer. And Jesus brings this rest, right, most fundamentally, how? At the cross. He experiences restlessness on the cross, separation from God the Father, in order to bring us into his rest. The cross looms in the background of almost every story in the book of Mark. We know it's coming, right, because we know the story so well. But look at how the, this story ends in verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Here's Jesus, restoring life. You, you could say saving life on the Sabbath. Here are the Pharisees plotting to kill on the Sabbath. the Pharisees, they plot with these Herodians. And it's very interesting because the Pharisees and the Herodians were poles apart from each other, religiously and politically. On the one hand, the Pharisees, they're very strict, right? We, we, we get that picture pretty clearly. They were religiously strict. They were the nationalists, okay? They, they are definitely, let's see, where does this put them in, in England? If they're, They are very uh, pro-Brexit, I guess you could say. So I don't know. Um, but they're the, they're the nationalists. They're totally, they totally reject Greek and Roman authority, okay? They want nothing to do. They hate the fact that, Roman, that Rome is ruling in their holy city. They hate it, okay? On the other hand, the, the Herodians are loyal to Herod, the puppet ruler of Rome. You know, Rome would conquer a place and they'd, they'd take someone, probably a half-breed, and put him on the throne and, and they'd say, see, you, you've got a Jew on the throne in, 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 in Israel. But, but really, they didn't because he was just doing everything that Rome told them to do, right? But the Herodians were the Jewish class with some social and political clout. They had some power that was given to them from Rome. They were liberal. They invited the influence of outsiders. They weren't nationalists at all. So the strict Pharisees and the liberal Herodians are natural enemies, poles apart. But they unite together because they have a common enemy. 
to kill a common enemy. Why? Anyone who has the authority that King Jesus has is a threat to us and our agenda. That's true. That is true. Friends, if your aim is to build your own kingdom, progress your own agenda, then let me tell you, Jesus Christ is a threat to you. I think sometimes us modern people have forgotten how divisive a figure that Jesus was and is. If, you're, if your goal is to promote yourself, to build your kingdom, to promote your interests, to be your own boss, to answer but to no one but yourself, Jesus is going to be your enemy. He's going to be your enemy. But friends... If you want joy, peace, forgiveness of sins, rest, Jesus, he will be your savior. But you can only encounter Jesus as savior when you submit to him as king. When you dethrone yourself and fall under his rightful authority. Christians, th- this applies to us so well because often we're tempted, I think often, it's not we're tempted, it's not bad to think of our Christianity. What, 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 is, what does it mean to be a Christian? I think we often, the first thing we go to is a list of things we acknowledge or believe. It, it's not any less than that. Part of being a Christian is believing that Jesus is king and that he's died for your sins, Right? But, but we know James tells us that, that even the demons acknowledge those things and be, in one sense believe those things. Most fundamentally, what it means to be a Christian is to be one who submits to the authority of King Jesus. We're submitters. Even more foundationally than believers. It's the same thing. But, but, but what's happened is in the 21st century, actually, in the, in the last many hundred years, belief has become synonymous with, I think. I think this to be true. The demons think those things are true, and yet they hate Christ. They won't submit to the Lordship of Christ. I walk down the town center uh, nearly every weekend here in Rotherham. I see a lot of people who look incredibly weary and tired. You can see it You can see it on their faces. You can see it. You can hear it in their voices. Life is hard. Ask your mate how he's doing this week, you know, and four out of five times he's going to say, I'm tired. People are tired. The the doctor might prescribe an extended holiday, and, and, and you should probably go on a holiday. A friend might suggest an early retirement. And you may go on an early retirement. You may decide that you're going to take your weekends to plop down in front of Netflix with a glass of wine. That's how you're going to use your weekends. But friends, you will always be restless. You can do all those things and you can remain restless. You can still do those things and miss out on the deep rest that God provides. The rest of your soul, 
the rest your conscience needs, the rest that true delight, the, the rest that is true delight in the fact that God is your possession. And friends, that rest only comes when you make king when you make Jesus your king. Let's pray. Father, help us to, one, recognize you as who you are. You're the king. You're the good king. You're you're the only kind of authority that does good for others at all time. Father, help us to reject the notion that our authority, our our authority over our own selves is, is somehow better than your authority over us. My authority could never be like yours. Father, help us as as people who submit to Christ and his word. Help us never to use your word as as a weapon to bludgeon people with. It's 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 for refreshment. It's for healing. Help us be a body of healers. Because we we follow you, the great, the great healer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.